Welcome to the Networking with Plants in the Anthropocene podcast. This week, we're joined with the wonderful Lucas Mertikian. Thank you so much for joining us, Lucas. Thank you, Kate, for the invitation. No worries. I can't wait to hear more about your work. I'm really excited. Would you mind introducing yourself to our audience? I am currently the postdoctoral fellow in plant humanities at Dumbarton Oaks. Um, but pretty soon I, I will be moving to New York um, to work as the director of the Humanities Institute um, at the New York Botanical Garden. So my my work um, in the past few years has had to do with um, how humanist scientists and artists can come together to tell stories uh, about plants, uh, especially in times of climate change and and global crisis. Uh, my background is in literary studies. I did my PhD in a, in the Latin American Studies Department, and I came to plants through um, reading about them and through um, trying to to analyze also biocultural collections, especially herbaria and botanical illustrations. So part of what I do right now at Dumbarton Oaks and what I will be doing at NYBG also has to do with um, come up with ways of telling these stories from the archives, telling these stories uh, from the point of view of herbarian specimens, of uh, botanical illustrations, rare books, and again, uh, using those as uh, conversation starters. Awesome. Um, for our listeners who aren't experienced in kind of being in some of those having the like physical experience of being in an herbarium um, or looking through rare books. What is that experience like? Especially, it seems like from the outside that it would be interesting to look at formerly living things in a completely different environment than other parts of the institution where they're alive and flourishing in a different way. Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Um, and I think it depends a lot of on who you ask, right? Um, so my point of view is, of course, the point of view of, uh, I don't know, I sometimes I like to think of my work as a uh, cultural historian or or literary critic or um, whatever it might be. But um, a scientist might, of course, look at these collections very differently. A book historian might look at them very differently. Um, uh, a botany curator uh, looks at them differently. Um, for me, uh, being in the herbarium, and there's there's a, an amazing book that just came out by Maura Flannery uh, called In the Herbarium. Um, and I, I think this, it describes very eloquently um, the, the kind of um, overwhelming feeling of um, both beauty, but also um, uh, so the, the, the level of care that goes into these collections. Um, into preserving plants sometimes for centuries um that it's it's very it's it's really overwhelming and and I think it's fascinating to as as you were saying to compare this to uh actually living collections right as as we call botanical gardens or uh arborita um and I don't see them as entirely inanimate um I because I, I think they they tell fascinating stories. So you you could spend a lifetime with uh, just any of these herbarium specimens and trying to figure out where they were first collected or when 
um, trying to imagine what might be, I don't know, um, not only the reasoning that might be easier to, to understand uh, from historical documentation, but um, the sense of wonder that might have accompanied this, uh, this, this sometimes discovery, sometimes just collecting um, the different, as we were saying before, different kind of very different purposes with which these collections were gathered. Um, that's uh, all of those things drove me to to biocultural collections, and and I, I think there's so again there are so many stories to tell about them. That's fascinating. <laughs> so I've had more experience in in gardens, I think, in arboreta than um, in herbarium. So er, herbaria. So I'm always very excited to hear what people's experiences are there. Um, after I read Prue Gibson's The Plant Thieves, which it documents kind of some of her experiences in and adjacent to um, an herbaria, herbarium, sorry, <laughs> herbarium, um, it was just like it, it opened my eyes to how complex and really fascinating and alive herbarium are, I think. Yes, and there's uh, it's uh, as exactly as you were saying, they're they're definitely alive. Um, and there's another book that really got me um, interested in inner area uh, by Barbara Thiers, uh, who used to be the the curator of the New York Botanical Gardens herbarium. Um, which I think it's also a wonderful introduction to 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 the world of uh, plant collections more generally. Um, and and also gives a very good overview, like Maura Flannery's book of how herbaria are being used today to track climate change, uh, to track habitat destructions and changes in populations. Um, so it's, it, which is like when, when herbaria uh, come alive, right? Um, today in the, in the face of our current crisis. Um, so it's very interesting to see how they, these specimens might serve very different purposes. Um, to those with which they were collected originally. Um, that That's also fascinating to me. Um, one of the questions that we like to ask all of our interviewees, if we get the chance, um, do you have a favorite plant? What is it? Well, uh, I, this is a, a tricky question for me um, because uh, I I am a, a good case of what some people call uh, plant awareness disparity. Um, so the the plant that I actually like the most or have spent the most time with is the plant that I didn't grow up with. Um, wasn't part of uh, my my community growing up, but it's rather a plant that I I spend a lot of time reading about. Uh, and that I, I've encountered many times in different collections, especially herbaria. Um, it's called, uh, commonly called Flower of the Andes. Um, and the scientific name is Chukiraga Yusie. It's, it's a low shrub native to Ecuador and Peru. Uh, it's a plant that I've never seen in the wild. Um, and, and as I said, I've, I've seen it in, in collections. That's how I first encountered it um, because it was uh, collected in the 19th century by many different explorers that traveled to Latin America. And I was working on their travel narratives. Um, and when I discovered that I could actually, being here in the US doing my PhD work, I, I could actually see those plants that had been collected 200 years ago. Um, I just 
fell in love with this uh, shrub that I had never seen um, and that was being researched at the time for its uh, medicinal properties and that it's now being researched again because of the same reason um, and, and actually driven to extinction by habitat destruction. So it's um, it's it's my favorite plant in the sense that I, I've spent a lot of time with it. I, I feel like I've become very intimate with it. And at the same time, uh, I'm still looking forward to to meeting it in person. Definitely. Um, you have mentioned that you're a good example of plant awareness disparity. Um, what has your history been like with plants? Are plants something that you've kind of become more aware of later in life? Um, did your family or community have gardens growing up or favorite plant foods? Um, what's your history with plants like? This question, um, when you when you first sent it to me, um, Kate, I have to say it really took me on a kind of introspective journey, and and I appreciate that. So thank you for that. Um, I I definitely became interested in plants later in life. Um, I I have to say that as I mentioned before, um, I, I first became interested in plants through reading about plants. Uh, and through reading uh, people who, who were very interested in plants, like again, um, European 19th century naturalists is mostly what I was reading. Um, and and I was as I was thinking about this question, um, I realized I was tempted to say that that I didn't grow up surrounded by plants, but but that is not true. Uh, I, I was just not aware of them um, because um, I actually, uh, I, I was thinking about my 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 family as well, and and we we did have a garden growing up um, in in my house that uh, my my mother and my father both of them really really care about it and and tended to it. It was a very traditional garden with very traditional um, garden flowers and and shrubs. Um, but but there was a, definitely a lot of effort and care. Um, that that was being put into it, and and that I, I'm pretty sure I didn't realize at the time that that was the case, um, and and I became very interested in plants in the in in the past few years. Um, as I said, when I I think when I when I moved to the U.S. Um, from Argentina, uh, the the change of of scenery, seeing how many trees were different, um, how how different other people's relationship with with nature was um also uh, was was very inspiring um intellectually and and as, i don't know uh, a rather human uh or emotional level um and 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 that's how i i i became more interested in plants as i was saying through my own research and also uh, through meeting other people and realizing that plants have a very different um place in, in people's life depending on where they grew up, um, what their relationship with with plants is, what their uh, family's relationship with plants are. Um, so, so yes, again, thank you for the question because it took me on quite a journey. How would you describe the work that you do? Um, and more broadly, but also in particular with plants, um, what do you do and what do they do? Well, I, as um, I, I think I mentioned before, I did my PhD in literature uh, with a focus on, on Latin American studies. Um, so most of my, my research with plants 
started with uh, travel narratives, um, travel narratives of, uh, again, European naturalists who were both interested in plants from, from an economic commercial point of view. They were very much interested in turning plants into commodities. Um, but as you uh, spend more and more time with those writings, you also uh, feel um, a, a level of detail and an attention to plants that I can't help to relate to to care and uh, and even to some kind of uh, preservation instinct. Uh, so kind of my work in, in my dissertation and that I'm, I'm trying to turn into a book right now has to do uh, with reckoning with that contradiction that um that contradiction between um using plants for profit and at the same time uh, expressing this deep affection and understanding and care for for plants um as i also mentioned before this took me to um from writings to biocultural collections so i'm very much interested in looking at how um herbarium collections and um, botanical illustrations are also engaged in this um, work of, of care, um, while at the same time being part of uh, what has been named colonial botany or economic botany. Um, so that's, again, a, a sort of a duality and ambiguity that I, I try to explore in my work. And more recently, I, I've been trying to, to write a second book project. I, I just recently embarked on it. Um, which is about the relationship between more contemporary literature and plants. Um, I'm specifically interested in an Argentine writer called uh, Jorge Luis Borges, um, who has mostly been read um, as a as a literary philosopher, if you will, um, mostly engaged with uh, very abstract problems, um, very very say uh, big names like, I don't know, Schopenhauer um, and ancient philosophy and so on. Um, but I'm more interested in in what role plants play in his writing, which is something that I think hasn't been explored as much, um, perhaps because of this uh, plant awareness disparity that we we were talking about before um, and how it it's also present in literary studies. Um, but I also think that's because he he's a writer that is very much considered, I don't know, like a world literary writer uh, in conversation with, um, again, uh, the, the great philosophy masters and plants seem to be somehow um, left out of that conversation. So I'm, I'm trying to think through his writing from the point of view of plants right now. That's fascinating. I know from my experience, definitely plants are not front and center in a lot of Western, of the Western philosophical canon. and But they're doing so much work in the background or even sometimes as like thought experiments. Yeah, can I add something? Uh, Absolutely. There's, there's um, uh, you were mentioning thought experiments and, and one of the reasons I became interested in, in this project about Borges and plants um, is that I, I was rereading um, for, uh, just for pleasure really, um, uh, a short story called Funes de Memorias. Um, it's been it's been widely translated into English um, as much of his work, and it's it's a short story about a man um, who who has an accident. He falls off a horse. Uh, the the story is set in a small 
a town in a small rural town in Uruguay in the late 19th century, if I'm not mistaken. And he falls off the horse uh, and, and is left uh, paralyzed. So as he he's unable to, to move and leave his house, um, he, he becomes overwhelmingly aware of the world around him. Um, and, and he gains this um, kind of perfect sense of perception and memory. So he remembers everything he sees, but not only everything he sees, but everything he everything he touches, everything he smells, everything he feels uh, with his body, um, and and that has usually been read as I, I don't know. Some people have read this character as a kind of a precursor to um, computational intelligences or artificial intelligence more recently, um, as a kind of uh, post-human cyborg. Um, but I'm more interested in, and, and actually, when you when you reread the story, you notice that plants are very much there, and oftentimes used to kind of um, render this this character's sense of perception and memory intelligible. Um, so the the thing about this character is that he, at some point, the narrator says, doesn't only remember uh, every tree in the woods, but also every leaf, and every time he saw these leaves and how they've changed over time. Um, and at some point he, well, he, the, the character dies because this is just too much, right? It's just too much information, too much to remember, too much to feel. Um, and I, again, as I was rereading the short story and noticing all these plants uh, here and there that have been sort of forgotten or uh, overlooked um, by critics, I, I, I started thinking about them as, uh, as a thought experiment in themselves right um how how do plants feel um how do we imagine humans that might be more attuned to the way plants feel than we are uh what that looks like um does that look like some kind of prodigy or does it look like some kind of uh monstrosity and and how does uh how how does that make us rethink uh, our own relationship to to our environment so um that's how I became interested in this in this project and and how I, I think of the work that plants do um, in my readings today of literature. That's fascinating. It really is so complicated. And that's part of why I love critical plant studies, because there's so much work to do making sense of like the roles that some of these plants have in existing literature and in existing philosophy, but also what work they're doing, what could be possible in what's going on for a plant, if anything's going on for a plant. It's really, I think, a rich area um, to, to do study, for sure. One thing that the network, so when the network had first kind of started, the networking with plants in the Anthropocene, um, we had thought of a few different projects. And one of the things that people were really interested in um, was the idea of having respect for plants. Um, it plays a role in some people's work, not always everyone's work, um, but I was wondering if respect does come up in your work and if you have any kind of thoughts on what respect for plants is or what it looks like or how it's embodied? 
Yes, that's a great question. Um, and 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 also one that I that I've been thinking about. Uh, so thank you for for making me think about it again. Um, I so I, I I'll start with uh, something that might look like a, a digression, but I uh, in the past um, year or so I I've been obsessed with this essay that I'm I'm sure you've read by Rob Nixon. Um, that came out in Environmental Humanities about a year and a half ago, I think. Um, it, the title is uh, The Selfless Gene, and, and it's about, uh, it's an interpretation of why uh, planned narratives have become so so attractive in the past few years. Um, thinking about, thinking of books like uh, Richard Powers' The Overstory, or uh, Robin Kimmerer's Braiding Street Press, and, and others. Um, and and his claim is that um, this these books uh, highlight a way in which uh, plants and especially trees and forests provide metaphors um, metaphors of care and metaphors uh, of support and and sustainability and and other ways uh, different ways of um, making place and and a different sense of community than. Um, sort of a capitalism, individualism, right? Um, so, and I've been thinking about that. Um, and I, I've been thinking about whether um, that's the case for every um, culture. I, I've been thinking about whether that's something that happens uh, mostly in the English speaking world, if that's something that um, also explains why these books are interesting to to other people as well. I mentioned this because, um, Books like the Overstory have been translated into Spanish, but they were nowhere the the, the hits that, that they were in English. Um, and usually, Spanish is kind of like my reference point because uh, I'm well, it's my my own culture, I guess. Um, and and I'm saying this because I, I I do feel sometimes that respect for plants might look like not asking. Uh, from plants to be a metaphor for society or to be a metaphor for um, how we think of ourselves, um, but rather to to remain um, in in the dark somehow and, and to, to remain a mystery and to learn how to engage with that uh, mystery and other forms of life that might not be entirely knowledgeable. And, and this is not, of course, to, um, to say that we as humanists shouldn't be very interested in, in what science is doing and, what, and, and the very exciting um, discoveries that are being made um, in in science and plant science particularly. Um, but but I, I do feel like uh, respect for plants might look a little bit like that. Um, and and I, I ask myself how this this form of respect can be translated into, again, for example, reading practices or uh, collecting practices or um, how we how we raise the profile of biocultural collections and how we use them to tell stories uh, of why we should care for plants and why we should respect plants, uh, especially in the Anthropocene and, and in an era when 40% of plant species are threatened by extinction, right? Um, yeah. Yeah, I, that's a really interesting answer. And I'll have to think about it more because 
there is that kind of like otherness, like radical otherness about plants. And it's interesting to think that a form of respect is just accepting <laughs> that otherness in the space of that mystery and not kind of forcing the way we see ourselves or our societies on them. Yes, and I think it's, uh, I, I'm, I, you, I'm sure you have more insightful um, ideas on this from, especially given your, your philosophy uh, background and, and, and education. I, I, I feel like some, sometimes we're, we are tempted to, to, to extract something uh, from our object of study, right? While at the same time, we are claiming that um, we, we are, respecting it or we are pushing for an ethics of care towards our object of study. Um, I, I don't want to be, I, I don't want to say that this is something that it's exclusive to, to, to critical plant studies or plant humanities, um, because it's, it also looks very much like that with animal studies, for example, and pretty much with, with everything. Um, and, and I think it also has to do with, um, and I don't mean this in necessarily in, in, in a bad way, but um, there is kind of always a what's new um, sort of uh, drive to to what we do and to scholarly knowledge or, um, yeah, academic knowledge more generally uh, in the humanities, especially where we're trying to, to look for the next new thing that might explain um, something that, that remains obscure, something that... Um, that, that we might not be able to fully understand. Um, and I, I feel like that sometimes takes us from one thing to another. Uh, so from animal studies to plant studies to whatever follows that. Um, you know, um, it's, it's a fascinating fact that only I think around 20%, uh, I might be wrong, of plant species have been identified. Uh, to think about how little we know about plants, that we can't even name most of them. Um, but then you think about, I don't know, insects, for example, and that number drops even lower. So it makes you wonder, like, are we looking at the right place if what we want to do is uh, um, try to get a hold of the unknown? Um, but I think it's a good thing to kind of like resist that instinct to jump from one thing to another, uh, just because it's it's new or uh, seems to be a, a new radical form of otherness, as as you put it, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's really interesting. It makes me excited to read your your forthcoming books, <laughs> the book projects you're working on. Um, yeah, and it it makes me think too of that tension that you had already mentioned before that like between that type of like extractive or commodified relationship that oftentimes shows up in like colonial like projects of plant collecting versus if there's like a, a mere image on the other side of something completely non-extractive or if there's like a, a spectrum of different less extractive or non-extractive kinds of uh, practices with plants so yeah, definitely yes yes it's a it's a it's a fascinating question yes When you think about education with plants, um, both as a researcher and as a teacher now, um, 
What are some ways that you think researching with plants is really important? Like, are there any specific facets of it that you think um, could be improved in certain ways or that you look forward to like changing some of those educational uh, practices or are there ones that you think work really well that you've seen practiced? That's a great question. I think one of um, one of the practices that I've seen that works really well, um, and it's not always always easy. It's always a challenge um, from what I've seen, but um, but a fruitful fruitful one is the conversation between um, humanists and scientists. Um, I I was lucky enough to uh, be part of the Dumbarton Oaks virtual faculty residency um, in the, the last summer. Um, and, and the cohort, um, included, well, you, you interviewed John Pitt, who was part of that cohort. Um, and there were also plant scientists and, um, environmental scientists. So, uh, that, that, those conversations were really interesting. Um, and, and as I said, I, I think it's sometimes, uh, a challenge. I've also seen this in, in, in conferences and, and workshops because there's, uh, there's some translation work that needs to be done um, for folks to to understand each other and to um, to to communicate with each other, um, but but it also seemed to me that that came very naturally uh, to all of them, and perhaps it's because of well, they're all people who are very passionate about plants. Uh, I'm very much interested in in other people's points of views about plants, um, so. So that that kind of collaboration is something that I that I'm looking forward to to fostering at NYBG and that I, I I'm looking forward to well uh, being part of those conversations also as as a student learning um, from both humanists and scientists and the the conversations that they can have uh, and and artists of course and writers who bring a totally different perspective as well. Um, so I'm I'm very much interested in in that. That's the kind of intersection that I'm that I'm mostly interested in now, especially also for um, educational environments and also public facing activities. Uh, I feel like that's that's a, a a gap that people have been trying to to bridge, and I I would like to contribute to to that. What are some of the public facing things that you're looking forward to doing in your new role? Well, that's a, also a great question. Um, as as you might know, um, the New York Botanical Garden um, opened about a year and a half ago, uh, the African-American Garden, um, that it's right next to the Edible Academy, and that was curated by Dr. Jessica Harris. And, and I'm looking forward to um, working with her in, in public programming around the garden. So the first year... Uh, the garden's theme was uh, the American South. Um, this year is the the Caribbean, and next year is going to be the African diaspora. Um, so I'm looking forward to contributing to that public programming. Uh, and we also have a fellowship program. Um, we we have three fellows every year, um, two scholars and one artist, and they are going to be working with the with the collections. So again, the, the herbarium mostly and the, the library collection. Um, so I'm very, I'm also interested in uh, in contributing to, to making their work uh, visible. 
Um, and and I think it's it's going to be very valuable to try to connect their work also to the work the uh, community gardens do in in the Bronx. Um, so so that's also something that I'm looking forward to um, learning from the community and and helping build that connection between uh, the the Bronx community gardens and uh, NYBG, which is something that NYBG has been very active about in the past few years. It's always so exciting to me to hear um, when institutions are reaching out and really connecting with community members and figuring out how best the institutions can help support um, the lives of community members because I know I've been to different college towns where there's such a big gap between some of those educations of either higher learning or just other types of public or private institutions that are seen as like knowledge makers. And it's really exciting, I think, to see more movement towards kind of community-based outreach, but also like, you know, connecting with communities and seeing what they want to be learning or participating in um, yeah. With knowledge. Yeah, I totally, I totally agree. And I, I should say that, uh, again, uh, NYBG has been doing for a long time fantastic work on this, and I have so much to learn from what they've been doing. And it's one of the things that I'm looking forward to the most uh, in my new role, uh, learning from what they've been doing with the Bronx Green Up Initiative, for example. Uh, I've met so many wonderful people and um and uh, again very much looking forward to to contributing in any way i can to to keep developing those those connections which are definitely already there So you had mentioned the stories that kind of um, exist around and with plants in Herbaria. Um, do you have a favorite story um, that kind of is either on the top of your mind or one that you've returned to over the years in your work with plants in Herbaria um, that kind of sticks out to you that you'd like to share with the audience? Yes, definitely. And this um, will circle back to the first question you asked me about my my favorite plant. I, I mentioned this um, low shrub, um, Flor de los Andes, or Flower of the Andes in Ecuador and Peru. Um, and one of um, one of the chapters um, in, in the book project that I'm working on is uh, basically a kind of biography of one specimen of this plant species that was collected uh, by Alexander Humboldt in 1802 uh, in Peru and first uh, brought with him, he, he brought it with him to um, the herbarium in Paris. Um, and from there, it traveled to Cambridge, Massachusetts, where it's now. Um, so the story of how it traveled from Europe to the U.S. to me was a fascinating one, and one that I tried to uncover because it wasn't documented when it arrived um, in in the U.S. Um, so what I try to do with um, 
Well, going through the letters and journals of Asa Gray was to identify that moment in which the, the plan traveled and trying to understand why it was traveling at that point in time. My my claim is that it had to do with um, the rising U.S. interest in Latin American flora um, because of political and economic reasons, uh, and also, of course, well, scientific reasons that were very much tied to those political and economic reasons. Um, and, and the plant then, it, it was supposed to be a type. Um, so when Humboldt first collected it, um, he thought it was a new species. And then it traveled to Latin America in the 80s uh, to Argentina. And, and an Argentinian botanist, Cecilia Curra, um, reclassified it, um, saying that it was not actually a new species, but a species that had been discovered long before, uh, or named rather, long before uh, Humboldt arriving in South America. Um, that change from type to known type, or rather to a different kind of type, to me is fascinating. Um, the plant, as I mentioned before, is now threatened um, with extinction because of habitat destruction. Um, it's um, it's one of the many plants of the Andes that, uh, that is endangered. Um, it has an important role to local communities as well. Um, a, a role that was mostly, I think, overlooked um, by the the kind of work that was been doing and being done in the nineteenth century, um, and so to me to see how that plant was turning from a type, so the like the first of its kind, right, to be named, to a relic today that it's threatened, um, was uh, was a fascinating biography. Um, that, that I wasn't expecting when I first encountered this plant. I was only trying to look at plants that had been collected uh, by Humboldt in the 19th century. Um, so so to, to kind of, uh, I don't know, dive deep into all of these steps in the plant's biography um, is, the, is, I think, the, the kind of story that, that you could tell from almost uh, any specimen in a collection. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, thank you for sharing it with us. And is there anything else that you'd like to share with the audience that we didn't get a chance to discuss? I, I just wanted to, it's a kind of a shout out to the Plant Humanities Initiative um, at Dumbarton Oaks. Um, I, I know many uh, of the people who listen to the podcast might already be familiar with it, um, but I... I I just like to uh, tell people to uh, go to our website. Um, we also have the Plant Humanities Lab, um, which is a digital platform that tells cultural histories of plants, um, kind of the ones that we've been talking about. Um, so, plants of his, histories um, of how plants have shaped human culture as food, medicine, because of their religious or spiritual value. Um, and I think these are stories that are particularly relevant um, in the Anthropocene. So just a uh, final recommendation for uh, your listeners to uh, go check it out, um, pitch any ideas you might have for narratives that you think we are missing uh, or that you think we should be paying more attention to. Um, we always welcome suggestions and hopefully we'll, we'll be in touch. Wonderful. Um, if people want to follow your work, um, 
do you have any uh, resources that they should look for? Um, I have a, a Twitter account. I'm not very active, um, but uh, I'm happy to to connect with people. Um, is uh, my first and last name at uh, Lucas Mertakian. Um, if people wanted to email at lmertakian at nybg.org, uh, I'm also happy to to connect with folks. Awesome. Thank you so much, Lucas, for coming and talking with the podcast today. It's been really exciting to hear more about your work. Now I'm really excited for your books. <laughs> will hopefully be out in the next few years. And yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you again for the invite. Thanks. Um, if you're interested in networking with plants in the Anthropocene, please check out our podcast, networkingwithplants.org. Or feel free to email us at networkingwithplants at gmail.com. Until next time, take care. music piece is kindly offered to us by artist Mylise. Mylise is a sonic artist, immersive ecology designer, and clean energy ambassador. Merging art and technology, she creates music experiences that express the voices of plants and the other inhabitants of the earth.